You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, <clears throat> you heard that from Luke chapter 1. Sometimes that is called the Annunciation, which is a fancy way of saying the announcement. It is not the enunciation, which is where you speak very clearly, you enunciate. It was not that Gabriel had good diction and how he said it. It is the annunciation, the announcement to Mary that she is going to bear the Christ child. Now, if you remember just before that, or you can look back up, or if you remember from last week, this is Gabriel, the angel, the angelos, the messenger of God. It's his second stop. The first stop, he went to Zechariah, and if you remember, he was, they, were, um, they were past the age of childbearing. She was unable to bear children anyway her entire life, and he came and said, you are going to have a child. His name will be John, and that's John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah questions and says, I don't know if I can believe this. Give me a sign. And, um, and okay, you want a sign? And he says, you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. That's your sign. And so they go, and then um, it says that Elizabeth, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth hid herself for five months. And so when this starts and says in the sixth month, it means in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, what is the nature of the relationship between Mary and Joseph? I'm going to describe some things to you, and you see what it brings to mind. You ready? What comes to mind when I say a man and a woman pledge to be united to each other with written promises, with oral promises, there's um, family members present, there are witnesses present, they give rings exchanged as a sign of their commitment to each other, they have a big reception afterwards, a feast, a lot of food, there's um, gifts given by the families to the couple, they officially belong to each other. They are called bride and groom and husband and wife. And the only way you can break that commitment is through divorce. What am I describing? Wedding, marriage, something like that. I'm also describing what it means to be betrothed in first century Judea in the Jewish culture. Here's the thing. We think about today, you think about you're dating, then you're engaged, and then you get married. And then we see in their culture, you have a sort of dating. It's like a, a courtship period, so to speak. Then you've got that you're betrothed, and then you get married. And the reality is, if you were going to shorthand and, and um, liken being betrothed to one of those three stages, it is much more like marriage than it is anything else. You heard the level of commitment that they're making to each other. The only difference is the betrothal period lasts about a year. Um, they, uh, they don't sleep together and they don't live in the same house together. And then a year after they're betrothed, then the husband takes the wife home as his, as his wife. And they have another ceremony at that time. Mary and Joseph are betrothed, but if we take it and just go, that's basically like they're dating or they're probably going to get married, it's much, much stronger than that. Uh, a young girl could get um, betrothed at the time she was 12, and there's stories of that, very, very, very young age. But here's the thing. Uh, Gabriel, it says, goes to Galilee, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. That was interesting. That's all right. Uh, let me show you a couple things about this. A town of Galilee named Nazareth. If I were to tell you, this is kind of, ah, oh, that was going to be fun. Uh, if I were to tell you that I am from Richardson, there would be a handful of you that would go, oh yeah, Richardson, I know what that is. 
but most of you would go, I don't really know what you're talking about. If I were to say I'm from a town called Richardson in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, then you would go, I got it. I got the general region, and there's some apparent city there named Richardson. What he's saying here is the region of Galilee, Look at, notice how he says it. He doesn't just say to, a, to the city of Nazareth. He says to the region of Galilee and a city in it called Nazareth. In other words, his Greek readers especially wouldn't have known what Nazareth was. It was a tiny, insignificant city in the first century. We know it now because of this. But if it hadn't been for this, we'd probably have no idea what Nazareth even is. Now it's famous, but back then it was so insignificant. In fact, do you remember at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is, is gathering his disciples, and Philip is one of them, and he goes to a guy named Nathaniel, or Bartholomew he's called as well. And he says, you've got to come meet this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's response? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he doesn't mean anything good like it's this wretched, immoral city. It really means, um, can anything grand come out? Can anything big? The Messiah, and he's going to come from Nazareth? That would be like if I said, hey, the Messiah's here in America. And you go, oh, is he from New York City? Or is he, is he in LA or like Chicago or Detroit or like some big city? Or, oh my gosh, Washington, D.C., like the capital of the world. And I go, come see him. It's Jesus of Des Moines. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Des Moines? You would go, really? Like, nice city and all, but you'd go, Des Moines? Like, why, like, why there? That's what's happening. Nazareth is a very insignificant town in the first century until this starts to happen. Apologies to any Iowans here. Like, like my wife, by the way, I gotta change that for next hour. Um, yeah, I know, I'm gonna be in trouble. Now, the next thing, now, when he talks about Galilee of Nazareth, now, the other thing we have to talk about for just a moment is Mary. Do you know how many Marys there were in the first century in those Jewish communities? It was probably the most common name, but it was an incredibly common name. In fact, you read the Bible and you see all these Marys and you have to go, which Mary are we talking about here? This Mary is somebody that if God had not intervened, it would be, she's probably a, little, she's probably a teenage young woman. If God had not intervened, we never would have heard of Nazareth and we would have no idea who this Mary girl is. We would have no idea who Joseph was. One of the big points as this gets started, as this text gets started, is God uses from worldly standards, insignificant places, insignificant people, and look what he does. Mary, to bear the Christ child. How remarkable is that? Those are the people that God uses. And I think a lot of times we go, well, the super Christians can do that kind of stuff. I grew up in the South, and there's, there can be a pretty unhealthy, um, like for pastors, there can be kind of an unhealthy idolization of the pastor, where um, these, these guys are standing up, and they're leading um, multi-million dollar organizations. They've got, um, they stand up and, and are proclaiming the word of God every week to thousands of people. And I remember growing up down there, and when I, or when I was a young adult, I remember thinking, I'm going to be in ministry. So I got this calling to ministry, and I didn't know what yet, but I remember explicitly thinking, which, which role would I ascend to at some point to be like a number two at a church somewhere? Because I knew that I could never be a lead pastor. And the reason I thought I couldn't be a lead pastor is because I was sitting back and watching, and in that culture, there was just such a, there was such a pedestal that they were put upon. And then I got the privilege of meeting a lot of these lead pastors, and I'd be sitting around in a room with them, and they would say things like, I still can't believe that I'm in this role. 
Why am I getting to do this? Why, why do people look at me to proclaim this? I thought, oh, that's a little different. And I'm sitting, getting here, I'm sitting here talking to them and listening, really just listening, and I'm hearing they're normal guys. They are called to do that, but they're very normal individuals. And so for me in that moment, there was, okay, maybe instead of going, somebody else is gonna do this, maybe this is what God is calling me to do. That really started the process for me because I looked and went, these are normal people that I was probably late 20s or so at the time. And I remember just feeling like so inadequate. And I was like, if it's just standing up and going, hey, I got nothing, but God's got everything. Well, I can do that. And that's what these guys were doing. God uses normal, ordinary people to do remarkable things. Amen. And uh, listen, we, um, <clears throat> one of my favorite memories that I'll always treasure here from Rockland. Sounds like I'm about to resign or something. One of my favorite memories, though, that I'll always keep forever is um, the first time we brought in a, a baptistry and we immersed some people. And um, the first one to be baptized was my, was my son, Seth. Now, we baptized my other, one of my daughters, and then we baptized another young woman as well. And um, uh, I remember it, it was just such a reminder to me of how we love watching God do amazing things. Because I, from my old Baptist church, what we used to do is you would stand up and the music's playing and it's very formal and you dunk and then you raise him up and you buried in likeness with his death, raised to walk in newness of eternal life. That's what you say. That's what you're supposed to say, right? And so we would do that in our, in our little Baptist prim and proper church. Looking out, people would go, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, that's so great. And you could see like they're all excited, but no one, no one expressed it. There, were no, there was no amening or anything like that going on. There was no clapping until we did, some of you know the story, we did a youth camp and the kids never came to church. And so they didn't know that you weren't supposed to burst out in applause when somebody got baptized. So they are seeing their friends getting baptized after camp one year and they get baptized and they come up and the kids just go, woo, and just start screaming with applause. It was awesome because they didn't know any better, right? And you could see they sort of broke the dam and then everybody else went, okay, good, we're doing this. And then they do it. And that church today at baptisms, from that point forward, still goes crazy during baptisms and applauds for the people because of that. So that's my background. That's what I'm used to. When I got here, I, I was going, I've done this and it's my son. And so I wanted to think it through some more because I was already like a weepy mess doing this. And, um, and I was expecting... You know, I'll say a whole bunch of stuff, and then at the end, everybody will applaud. And what happened, if you remember, if you were here, or if you've heard me tell this before, I said, um, Seth, my son, I said, this is Seth, and he's here today to get baptized. And you know what happened? Everybody broke out into applause. And I'm pretty good on my feet, but I remember going, oh, all right, good. Come here, buddy. And he got in there, and then I talked to him for a minute, and I said, what's your profession of faith? And he's supposed to say, Jesus is my Lord. And then I go, on that profession, and go right into it. And he goes, Jesus is my Lord. Wah! And the crowd goes wild again. I went, all right. And then, and I'm starting to get all teary in this emotional moment. I'm supposed to say, buried in likeness with his death, raised to walk in newness of eternal life, and I have to say those things. And so I go to dunk him, and I want to pull him out so he can hear me say, raised to walk in newness of eternal life. But you started applauding. And so I wanted to get my words out, so I'm like a weepy mess, pulling him up, like screaming in the microphone, raised to walk in newness of eternal life, like having this incredible moment with my son. But what happened was, everybody's watching it, and you did what was appropriate, when a, a young man goes, Jesus is my Lord, to go, yes, to celebrate that. We love those stories. We love watching conversions. We love hearing stories of people in their, in their business or in their neighborhood that are reaching other people for Christ. Amen. 
And what we're seeing right here is who does he use? People like you and me. God can use you to do something remarkable. Your qualification is to trust in him. That's what Mary did. Verse 28, it says, he came to her. This is Gabriel now. He came to her, and the phrase means in some kind of indoor setting. We're not sure where. And he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29 doesn't have a great translation. It says, but she was greatly, and if yours says troubled, you might think of the word perplexed. She's going, what's going on? This, uh, this angel is speaking to me. She was greatly troubled or perplexed at the saying, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And now Gabriel is going to start a run on all the things about this child. Now, I have a disconnect here. I don't even think I'd be able to, to fully grasp what Mary is feeling when she starts hearing this. From an angel, by the way. So here's what he says. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found, and it literally says grace with God. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Matthew's gospel gives the etymology of the word. You'll call his name Jesus because of the name Jesus, um, what it means. And she, he's, um, Matthew says because um, he will save the people from their sins. So he's giving the etymology and the meaning of the word. Um, Luke doesn't do that here because the emphasis is not on that. The emphasis is on he is from God. This is God's initiative, the divine initiative in making this happen, creating the child, giving the child a name. So be a, a, a teenage girl and an angel appears to you and says, uh, this is, uh, he is from God. You are going to have a child and he is from God. Then the angel's going to say, he is God. It says, he will be great and be called the son of the most high. Immediately what Mary would have thought of is in the Old Testament, the, the best um, parallel to it is the word Elion, which is only reserved for God himself. She would have understood this is a son, this is the son of God. The divine, I'm about to bear the child belonging to God most high. He is from God. He is God. And then he's going to say he will reign forever as God. Look at this. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. He is God. He is from God. And he will reign forever as God. Now, Think back to when Zechariah got the news, he questioned the angel and said, basically, I don't think this is going to happen. I need a sign in order to believe this. Mary's response is notably different, and it's hard to see in English, but Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Um, meaning, I don't understand, but notice what she says, how will this be? She doesn't talk like, well, the Messiah is not going to come. She's actually talking with the assumption that what the angel says is going to come to pass. She's basically asking, what's my role in all this? How are you going to do this? Where Zechariah goes, is this really going to happen? I need a sign. I'm not sure. She goes, I'm sure this is going to happen. What do I need to do? What is my role in this? So she's asking for, uh, for clarity. And, she, and the reason is, is because she's a virgin. Now, um, this is intimidating. This is the only congregation in America where it's intimidating to talk about this because we have like a thousand geologists, all right? But I did some research. I'm expecting a lot of lengthy emails when I get some of this wrong, all right? But um, do you know, I think this, I don't even know if this is geology. I think it is. Um, watershed moment. Have you heard that phrase? A watershed moment. 
The idea of a watershed, as best as I understand, is the watershed, you have water underground, water on top of the ground, and it runs to some kind of pool, reservoir, man-made or natural, and then from there, it, it runs off. And um, what they say is if you get some kind of pollutant in this right here, then everything downstream is going to be different. Everything downstream is gonna be polluted. Um, we talk about watershed moments where you go, the world is kind of running this way and then it gets to this moment and if something changes, everything afterwards is gonna be different. 9-11, um, probably multiple wars would fall into that category. I think we're living in one right now. You've got businesses operating a certain way and after this moment, I think they're gonna be different. People are probably gonna be working remotely. What does that mean for, do you have to hire people now in town or can you hire the world over and how do you build teams? And I think the world's gonna change dramatically as we start to move forward. And there's some doctrine as well that sometimes we call a watershed doctrine. Meaning if, you, if there's a piece of doctrine of truth about God that you don't get, it will pollute everything else downstream. And I would argue that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is one of those. If you can't say that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, think about what, what's behind that. What's behind that is, that's not how it works. That's not science, that's not biology. And if that is going to be difficult and that's the hangup, then all of a sudden you start reading all these other things that talk about the supernatural power of God, the supernatural nature of God. And if you've already decided, nah, I don't know about that because I trust science so much, I don't trust that God is over that, then all of a sudden downstream is gonna look very different for you. This affects everything. Or what about when pastors stand up and they start to talk about this and they say the virgin birth, and if you go, hmm, all of a sudden, your ecclesiology, your understanding of the church can be minimized. Well, they're saying that, I don't know if I'm really on board with that. Or um, if you look, it's throughout the Bible, it's in Isaiah, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke's gospel a couple times, and um, if you start looking, I, I don't know if I can get there, then all of a sudden, how you view the Bible that changes how you view the Bible at large. If we don't understand the supernatural nature of God, well, who, who cares if Jesus died for sin? If we don't understand it, he really, he rose from the dead? This is one we need to get right, and, and um, if we get this wrong, then all of a sudden, um, a lot of other stuff will get polluted. I do get it, though, because it can be a difficult doctrine or difficult truth to understand, but here's how I challenge you today. Difficult doctrine should make us worship, not worry. Difficult doctrine should make us worship, not worry. The fact that this happened should bring us to our knees instead of going, I don't know. This is remarkable what God has done. This whole too good to be true thing. I have a buddy in college that, um, poor guy, went out on a date with his girlfriend. He'd been dating for a while. They went and got Indian food. He doesn't like Indian food and she wanted him to keep eating. So he's eating a whole bunch of Indian food. They, he picked her up, they held hands, gave her a kiss, put his arm around her, got her in the car, went out to dinner, everything was fine, uh, paid for dinner, and then they're sitting and talking and um, she broke up with him. And so uh, he gets back to the house and is sitting there with the, about six or eight guys somewhere in there sitting around. He had, he had too much Indian food he's never had before, very sensitive stomach too. And so he's like double hurting on the inside, if you know what I mean, like the food and then he just got dumped by his girlfriend. And he's just sitting in this room with us just looking miserable. And we said, tell us about what, what happened. And he said that she broke up with him and the reason she gave was he was too good to be true. 
That's never happened to me, by the way. Uh, Nikki's like, you're fine. Yeah, that'll work. But I thought, but we all heard it, and there was just this stunned silence for a moment, and we said, what happened? And, we're, and then we're like, we got to do some recon and find out. And she did. She said, she just said everything I've learned about him. He's so great. He's such a gentleman. He's so nice. He loves the Lord. So, the Christian couple loves the Lord so much. And on and on and on with this incredible resume of righteousness. And so what did she do? She's like, well, I, it's better to just sort of have this image of you as this perfect person instead of like really, you know, keep going and then, and then be, you know, disappointed. And we were like, what are you talking about? And honestly, like most of the guys at that point were like, that's probably good that she broke up. Like there's probably some stuff going on. Why would you say this is too good to be true? And so I, oh, I need to take a few steps back. If we look at these doctrines of God and look at the virgin birth, the miraculous thing that, that God has done, we should press into them without fear and without worry. Amen. Should bring us to our knees in worship. So the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth. Some older translations say cousin. We're not sure which uh, relative is better. We're not sure which um, relative. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this in, is the sixth month with, with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Remember Zechariah. This is going to happen. I need a sign before I believe. What does Mary do? I believe. And the angel goes, oh, I'm going to give you a sign. You know, um, Elizabeth, that you know well, your relative that wasn't able to have children, you can go see her. She's five months pregnant. She's in her sixth month. Faith came, and then the sign came after. Now, again, I have a disconnect here. Besides just being in the 21st century, besides being a man, so I'm not going to be, I can't really put myself perfectly in Mary's situation. I even think some of the women here, it's hard to put yourself in Mary's situation exactly in that culture to have an angel speaking to you. Um, but I still look and I'm still blown away and I go, how in the world could this happen? Like, it seems like a short encounter to go, by the way, uh, God's in you and um, you're, you know, your relative's pregnant and that marriage would just go, okay. Like, it seems like a really quick thing. How was she, how was she able to bear this without getting, here's all the signs. Remember, she said she'd do it before she even got the signs. Verse 38 says, Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord, let it, be, uh, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's different from saying I'm going to serve as opposed to say I'm going to be a servant. Oftentimes we think, well, if God asks me, I'll serve in that moment. What Mary's doing is saying I am a servant of the Lord. And so when God sends his messenger to me to speak to me, my heart is ready to say yes before I even know what the question is. I am ready to be obedient and to follow God. Now, the word actually says, behold, I am a slave of God. What she's trying to say is, my opinions don't matter. Um, whatever God says, I will do. I am owned by God. And I know, I know when we hear that, we start to think, wow, being enslaved to something, that just sounds like an awful thing. And, and it is because we picture that. You picture slavery. You picture, um, you know, like, like children, workers in other countries. One of the ways they get around it is they, is they act like, they say it's not slavery. These are kids and they're here. And they're like, well, they're 12. It's basically slavery. It is slavery is what's happening. And so we see it and we go, that's horrible because all these human institutions and all the humans in the world are fallen and broken. She is not saying I'm a slave of this person, this person, this person. She says, I am a slave. I am a servant of the most high God. 
I feel like this is a recurring theme, but we are going to live our lives in servitude of something. Might as well be God. Sometimes we live um, as a slave to our own pleasure or fun. I just need more, 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 more. I just want more stuff. Or some people are such peacemakers. All that enters their mind is, is everybody doing okay? Oh no, did I rock the boat right here? Are we gonna be okay? Um, or, or people pleasers would, could be another sort of flavor of this, where it's what I do. I walk in and I really want to know what other people think of me. We become enslaved to other people's opinions. There are some people that are enslaved to their politics, that have voted a certain way their entire life and cannot stop and look and go, should I be voting this way? If somebody says something negative about my guy, my gal, my team, something like that, I immediately, I don't do research, I just, I just push against it. You're now enslaved to it. Some people can't think clearly about that because they're just enslaved to it. There are things that enslave us, power and control. If you've got a, a boss that micromanages you, it's probably not just he's a bad leader, it's probably there's some kind of power and control that he's trying to exert, and it could be this addiction, something that he's enslaved to, or some people are um, slaves to perfection, slaves to safety and peace. Everything I do, I do in fear because I just, I need everything to be right and good and, and, and not get hurt and my kids not get hurt and everything we do is in safety and fear and we're enslaved to that. And what Mary is saying is I am a servant of God. I worked at a camp for five years and there was a guy, they'd always get him to come speak. And uh, every year, in fact, I was there five years and by the fifth year, I could just, I could have given his talk for him. He was the janitor on campus. And the, I'm going to use his words here. He would come in and he would speak and he would talk about, uh, he would usually start out and I could probably almost do the whole thing. He'd say, uh, this is during staff training, excuse me, to all the, the college counselors. He would say, I am the lowest man on the totem pole. He was in his fifties. He would say, you have a problem with your trash that gets strewn on the ground. You don't take care of it. You call me and I'm out there where no one can see me picking up the grossest stuff and putting it back in the trash. Your toilet gets clogged and it overflows. I'm the guy that goes in there and has to fix that. I have the dirtiest, grossest job. I had a cabin full of teenage boys. I got to know this guy very well. In fact, one time, by the way, I called him so much one week, he would just start coming by the cabin just to check in on just my, my cabin with a bunch of teenage boys. And he would talk about service. He would talk about serving other people. And, and you serve other people. And he had a real, I won't go into it. He had a real interesting, like you serve other people. Obviously, there's, there's some limits and caps on that. And he said, I've spent my life serving other people. And he, and he said, everybody thinks I'm the low man on the totem pole. I have, I have no power, no authority, anything like that. And he would always do it. He'd pull out his keychain, And he had, it was a keychain about that big. And probably more than three quarters of it was covered with keys. And he would say, am I the low man on the totem pole? I have keys. I'm, he said, I'm the only one that has keys to every single lock on this camp. I can get into any cabin. I can get into any office. I can get into any safe. I can get into any desk. I can get into any filing cabinet. And he talked about serving the people around you. And then he'd always end with something about serving the Lord. And I heard this for four years, and by the fifth year, I was like, oh, Rich is speaking, okay, this is good. And all the new people that never heard him, would, you were just, you know, we were all captivated, even though we've heard it before. And the fifth time I heard it, he changed one little thing. And he got to the very end, and instead of just saying, just serving the Lord is the greatest thing you could do, 
Um, it, it, I noticed it because it changed. It was the only thing that I noticed that was different. He said, to be a slave of God is liberating. To be a slave of God is liberating. And when he said that, I looked around at other people that had been there for a while, and we were all looking around going, that's different. He was trying to tell a whole bunch of young people, surrender your life to God entirely. People will say it's enslavement. It is freedom, and it is liberation. Amen. We can be like Mary and decide to live our lives as a servant of God Almighty and let him use us to do marvelous things through us. Ooh.